It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the power of literature and how writing can change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today I talk to Stephen Kinane. Stephen is a Mata Mata from Mirrawoong country in the East Kimberley. He's been an active writer and researcher for more than 25 years, as well as lecturing and working on sustainability, politics and history with a focus on regional and local community resilience, belonging and connections with place. Today we talk about his book, Shadow Lines, published by Fremantle Press. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, Stephen Kinane. Today we're talking about your book, Shadow Lines. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Shadow Lines is a remarkable book. It's it's honouring two amazing people who fought against you know, such adversity. Can you give us a quick elevator pitch and tell us what this book is about? Well, an elevator pitch. Um, okay. <laughs> it's a love story. And it's a story of an Aboriginal woman, Mirawang woman from the East Kimberley, who was taken away at the age of five and sent to the south of WA to be raised in a mission and sent out as a domestic servant and a non-Aboriginal man who grew up in a very middle-class existence but with its own strictures and stresses in London who escaped much of the empire or at least I think um, what the empire offered and came to Western Australia and their two lives entwined. Mm, it's an, it's a, you're right, it is a love story. It's got so much to it though, so much historical content but at the core it is a love story and it is nice. Why was this book important for you to write? I think um, growing up uh, as an Aboriginal person in WA and, you know, just the school system the way that it used to be and also just the general sense of ignorance that was out there and can still be out there is mm. often still out there, let's face it, and it takes a long time to change those perspectives. But the the, the versions of history, the, the sense of us as a community... And I think just the, you know, the courage of the stories as well as just good old storytelling wasn't really represented in the mainstream in any way. You, you know, if you look into the biscuit tins of our families um, and the photographs that we made of ourselves, it was a completely different world to the way that we were portrayed in the mainstream media. So I think part of it was somewhere in there was a sense of advocacy, perhaps, you know, historical advocacy, advocacy historical justice. But I think the main thing was just wanting to do justice to stories that I grew up uh, hearing as a child and to not only my grandparents, who, if you like, are the two main characters of the story, certainly their lives are, but all of the uncles whose lives surrounded their own. And so I wanted to get a sense of it's not just their story, but through their story, you get a real sense of a, an Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal community that formed in Perth throughout the if you like, the, the middle half century of the 20th century. Now, what was it like writing about your grandparents? Because I often think about doing the same thing because I think within that time period so many 
interesting but awful things happened. I mean, my grandparents, you know, were refugees and were part of the Japanese war camps, etc. But how do you do yeah. their lives justice? I think I think you do their life justice by loving story. Mm. And so in a sense, you, you look for the narrative and you trust that there are lots of different versions of, of anyone's life. And so, you know, in my grandfather's case, he was a non-Aboriginal man. He met my grandmother at the Moor River Native Settlement where he had a position of power. He was the, what they called the second boss, which was that he was responsible for basically the farming side of things, which was mainly working with men, uh, mainly working out in the fields. But at the same point, she and other women also did act as servants to those staff. And so, you know, as one example, I had to really interrogate in the oral record um, as well as the historical record, you know, how what was the situation between them? You know, was it a, a, a relationship of equality? Uh, but, you know, thankfully in my case, or in his case at least, um, you know, most community members who were inmates at the time reckoned that he was just the biggest pushover. <laughs> and they loved having him as a second boss because, you know, uh, they could basically get him to get a bit of extra food. And, you know, he was certainly someone that, that wasn't there to lord it over people. And uh, when they did get together, my grandparents, it was, it was, if you like, uh, something that people reveled in rather than they saw as in any way problematic. Mm -hmm. And just by reading the book, it sounds like your grandmother was a very tenacious woman and probably wouldn't have put up with anything less. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, I, my mum's 90, so wow. their, their child, Betty, who was born in 1930, I just just the other day, Mum was interviewed for the um, WA Museum, the new oh, museum project. Oh, fantastic! I'm, yeah, I'm I was kind of separate to anything I'm doing because I'm also a curator on that, but um, or a, a sort of curatorial person within the team. And um, but it was really lovely to hear. That, you know, she was asked the question in terms of you know equal power within the relationship, and uh, she was adamant. No, no one was ever going to push her around. Um, and I think you know, I hope that's come through in the story mm. as well. I could definitely sense that. Now, before we carry on, I love the birds chirping behind you. What kind of birds have you got in the background? All right. Well, in the background at the moment, we've probably got, let's see, there'll be some 28s. Uh, I think they're, what are they? They're the New Holland honey eaters, actually. Wow, so they're wild yeah. birds, are they? Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah so quite, a, quite a few trees here in good old just just out of Fremantle, yeah. Oh, I love the sound. I think it should be in the background of every episode I record. It's it's calming. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I can't hear it, but I'm glad you can. <laughs> yeah, I can. I like it. Now, the line, cuts leave scars, scars leave tracks, and tracks can be followed. And I sort of saw this as a double meaning of, you know, you being the historian, if you like, or the storyteller, but also about history and memory and trauma and how those things can really stay with you and even stay with you through generations. Can you talk to me a bit about that line? I thought that was a really interesting line. Well, okay. Um, I think I think when writing that, uh, that was written with the East Kimberley very much in mind. And um, I mean, even though now at my age, I've been going back and forth and living in the Kimberley uh, since I was 20. So what's that? That's about 33 years now. Um, but at the time, I wanted to capture a sense of um, of coming to terms and the first return that's, you know, a common theme for people returning to country. And and certainly that sense of trauma was there. I mean, many of the older women who've since passed on who were so welcoming uh, when I did reconnect back in Kununurra, back in 1988, there was a one, just, you know, this wonderful warmth, but it was also 
countered by the fact that, um, you know, when we were working out exactly how Nana fitted in, there were easily, you know, a dozen children taken just from that one part of the world within that time period that we were looking for that she that people thought she could have been before we started doing the, the historical sifting. Um, so in that sense, I think the the idea of cut sleeve scars, scars leave tracks, tracks can be followed, is that even though there is that that trauma that exists and it's it is intergenerational and it it's that through through tracking back, through giving respect to the history and through facing up to our past um, from whatever aspect we're, we're looking at it, I think that's how we give it respect. I think it's how we grow. I think it's how we mature um, as a people, as a nation, as um, you know, an individual looking back through their ancestral memory. I really like that. And I was thinking it must have been hard for you doing the research and I was wondering whether you were able to separate yourself because it is, you know, about your grandparents and some of the lines, you know, they were quite confronting. And one of them was um, to be chained and dragged a hundred miles was to be escorted to live in a camp with your family was deemed to be neglected to have fairer colored skin than your mother meant suitable for removal. And I thought, how did you feel reading these things? Cause they're horrific examples, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think, I think, um, how can I describe it? I, I think when you grow up with oral history, when you grow up with a sense of normality about family members, aunties, uncles being missions and settlements, uh, when you grow up with a sense that, um, you know, it's fairly, it's common um, amongst your cousins and other people that that there's this kind of experience, um, it is quite confronting when you actually then, you know, coming from a working class background, uh, not necessarily having these things revealed to you, certainly not within school or within history texts until really the 1970s when there were trailblazers. Um, when you're going into the primary record and you're actually reading the trails that are left behind by trailblazing historians like Anna Habick, Marianne Jebb, um, you know, of course, Henry Reynolds and others, Bruce Shaw, then you, you, you know, it is an awakening. It's a, it's both shocking, uh, but also in some ways um, confirming of, of what you experienced and you knew. But in terms of the oral memory that existed and the way that people shared these stories, it was, it was really told just in terms of what was done to people, or it was much more about the ways in which people coped with that kind of draconian system. So. When you asked me how was it uh, squaring up to the archival record, I think it was both empowering to interrogate the archives, and I think myself and uh, Laura Marsh, who was my co-researcher in a number of projects that led to this book, um, and also um, other community members, and particularly older community members, who we engaged in a kind of a historical justice project of, of getting to look at these original files. Um, we we felt empowered ultimately, even though much of what was in there was was so skewed by the 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 mechanism by which they've been created. They've been created as as part of a regime, so to speak. And so, in that sense, they're an archive of a repressive regime. And that in itself, as long as you've got that understanding, then you can come to terms with it. But it still doesn't uh, it still doesn't remove the sting of the perspectives that you find within them. Mm. I do like the word empowering, though, because I think that's important and that comes through your, in your book as well. And, look, I loved your grandmother and, you know, 
her name, born Gypsy, known as Jessie, later on known as Cully by your grandfather. And I just feel like she was such a rebel at times or just such, you know, ahead of her time maybe and, and just doing what she wanted to do or, or doing what she thought was right, which I just thought was so lovely and refreshing. But there was a time she was sent to the settlement and what surprised you about that part of the research or her experiences there? Because it must have it sounded awful. Um, I think with Moor River, um, what's shocking about Moor River is the way in which, I mean, apart from, and I, and I used to actually work as a, a heritage officer at Mugumba when it was finally handed back to the community, Moor River Native Settlement, which was also known as Mugumba, its traditional name. Um, I think what shocks you the most is the the way in which the wider society was just so keen to allow people without trial, without cause, um, under say-so of a single bureaucrat, to be imprisoned without um, a specific time period for as long as uh, a bureaucrat may wish to, um, in essentially a, a refugee or a camp of concentrating people in one particular place, of one particular race, uh, for one particular reason, or a series of reasons, but uh, one reason was, as Anna Habeck has written, you know, out of sight, out of mind, but it was also, it was largely a part of that social engineering, um, or if you like, a kind of a psychotic um, uh, faux social engineering, in that even though that was what they claimed it was there to do, to teach people to sew, to teach people enough to get to grade three, um, to provide housing and shelter. I mean, largely it was just to penalise people. It was to segregate people and anyone that was deemed a problem to be uh, sent away. Yeah, it was quite shocking how compliant a lot of the people in society were, at, you know, dobbing them in or reporting them when they didn't follow the rules i found that quite um quite shocking actually you're right i think um it sometimes the, the wonderful thing about history and we'll we'll be you know experiencing it ourselves in our time now where we we won't really uh we we, we ideally hopefully have learnt to to self-reflect or to reflect as a people on how we're treating others at this time but um certainly as we look back uh, both in the press and, um, as you said, just in general um, oral accounts of people's behaviours, um, they were acting in a way that was very counter to the mythologies of, of you know, good old um, uh, Australian mateship and so on. And I hope that's changed, and I think collectively it is, but I know that we've still got a long way to go. Prejudice still exists, as you mentioned before. What can we do better as you know, people of this country to move forward quicker. To move forward quicker. I think that the the notion of truth-telling that's at the heart of the Uluru Statement is really important. Uh, I think that if I look back over Shadow Lines, when the Pelican laughed before that, um, the documentary, The Coolbury Club, uh, work I've done in teaching at universities or, or research I've done, community-based research throughout the Kimberley, um, you know, heritage that we've set up at Mugumba or working in the new museum project. It, it's all been about, it's partly been about education, but I think that it's less about one one way education. It's less the notion that uh, there are people who need to be educated and people who hold that information. It's more about that kind of intersubjective inter space where if you set up those opportunities for people to engage if you set up those opportunities for people to break down those kind of mythologies, invariably they will, will do so. 
It's just that, you know, in the case of Shadow Lines as one example, I mean, the 1905 Act that was largely responsible for my grandmother's removal, while it definitely and most most definitely was designed to impact on Aboriginal Western Australians, uh, it was very much of its time within this nation and very much of its time within colonialism internationally. But ultimately, what it also did was to separate non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people from each other. And so in that sense, it's not surprising, one, that prejudice exists, even where there's interest. Um, it's not also it's also not surprising that people are keen to bridge that divide because essentially for some period in Western Australia from 1905 until 1972, we had those kinds of racist divides within our, our legislative um, uh, canon. And so, you know, it takes a long time to, I think, overcome those foundations. Mm, I think you're right. And when you talk about racial divide, then that was kind of flipped on its head because when you read your book and what happened in 1930 when your grandparents, Jesse and Edward, they were allowed to marry, then there was behind it this awful idea of biological absorption. That was horrifying to me. Yeah, I think, and in, in that was discovered by looking through the 1934 um, Royal Commission um, into... Uh, uh, administrative affairs here in Western Australia, and the way in which Neville, in particular, was was focused on particular couples, and and also just through looking through people's personal files. I mean, we're we're only each allowed to look at our own particular family files mm -hmm. when you do receive these files, but you know we all know each other and we do share them and we help each other to to find other information or if we find information in files that are about other people we know, we'll we'll share that with people. And so in that sense, you've been able to we've been able to kind of piece together, not only through looking at the administrative files, but also through the personal files, the ways in which um, that ideology certainly informed the actions, not just the policy, but the actions. Um, and of course, it's on the oral record, it's through people being able to share that experience who survived it, um, which is why it's so disheartening to hear people such as, you know, Andrew Bolt and Keith Winshuttle belittle that history. I couldn't agree more. Now, the book is about identity in some ways. Um, you know, your grandmother, she was forced to lose her identity. She was forbidden to have connection with her language and her land. How did that impact her throughout her life? Um, I think that what Norwesters, like my grandmother did, and I think what any people do who find themselves, uh, you know, either either through having to leave their country for, for whatever reason, their country of origin, or in, in her case being, you know, physically removed for a particular purpose. Ultimately, you create new community. And I think that's what, if anything, I think what Shadow Lines has tried to do is to reveal the community that people created out of what was done to them and what was attempted to continue to be done to them in spite of those policies, in spite of those laws, uh, in spite of that prejudice. And so in that sense, um, I mean, culture is your way of being. And so in that sense, yes, she she didn't continue using her skin group. She didn't continue speaking Marawang. Um, she didn't have contact with the kind of uh, spiritual cultural practice that she would have um, been partly witness to as a child growing up. Um, but at the same point, um, she created a new form of community. And there were specific 
uh, Aboriginal aspects or Aboriginal cultural aspects of that community that then came to form its foundations. And so I think people respond to that kind of trauma by creating something more substantial that's relevant for their experience. Mm, and there are different ways to rebel against the system, aren't they? It doesn't always have to be... Um, it can be a bit quieter, can't it? <laughs> well, I think that's where women like uh, Nan Alice Nana uh, used to refer to it as cracking dumb. Mm -hmm. And what they were getting on there is that, you know, absolutely speak up when you you must and people like Nan Alice Nanup did and I suppose my own grandmother did at various times uh, but by but beyond that uh, just be aware that the system is always there but to not allow it to deny you to get on with your life. Mm, absolutely. Now, I love the juxtaposing stories, particularly at the beginning when we see Australia and then we see London and how they are absolutely worlds apart, particularly back in you know that time period. And I love how despite this, they still manage to find each other and find that connection. And, you know, as we talked about before, there's a lot of history in it, but at its core, it is a love story where they, you know, fight against so much prejudice and, and what, you know, they come up against. And they managed to do it. And I just loved the idea of those two worlds colliding. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, I think I think often when we we look at Aboriginal history, we forget about those non-Aboriginal people also who have either sacrificed or made choices or stood up for their Aboriginal partners or children or friends um, throughout history. Um, and I think it's really, I think in that sense, it was really important. Also, for someone like Edward, uh, for Grandad, he was so much quieter in many ways. Um, literally, the fact that he had to whisper because of diphtheria mm. that had um, resulted in him having his vocal cords severed and in the colony. And um, But at the same point, I think uh, he was by no means a pushover himself. And it was really important to look at, I think, for that time, a non-Aboriginal man who stood by his Aboriginal partner uh, and loved his partner and basically, you know, remained faithful to her and them to each other throughout their entire life. Um, yeah, it's not the narrative that's generally told and mm. it's certainly not the narrative that's generally experienced. And when you talked about him um, contracting diphtheria and then only being able to whisper afterwards because of that operation, he also used that to his advantage, which I liked throughout the novel, throughout the book as well. That's right. You know, he he became he well he was quite a theatrical character in his own way. <laughs> um, uh, he was he was you know he was a he was quite a wiry, athletic individual. He could turn his hand to almost anything, and he was he was you know genuinely well liked by by all who came to know him. He was um, uh, basically described as very much a, a gentleman, a, a Londoner amongst you know the kind of inner city uh, Maramara community that he'd come to call his own. And the last question for you, I'm always very interested, and I guess we've touched on this a little bit, but Stephen, why do you write? Oh, why do we write? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think I'm always scribbling, and then, you know, you'll, you'll find, uh, you know, a, a wonderful small aspect of story. I think it's a love of story. It's a love of um, the way in which story is just such a powerful way to communicate with others we can take you know the smallest most insignificant of events and as writers we can we can make them we can 
give revelation to you know these small beauties, these wonderful little tender mercies that we witness, that we all witness, I think, throughout our day. And I think, though, as writers, we will tend to squirrel them away or, or scribble them. Or, and I think for myself, um, it's always been about writing by hand first. So I'm always writing, I'm always scribbling, I'm always journaling, um, I'm always putting uh, evidence uh, away, I'm always... Uh, thinking of places that, you know, will just jump into my head and I'll start doing research into where I might be a place that I feel I need to go to experience something. Um, and once again, my way of, of capturing it best is to is to write. Um, you know, I do also make images and so on, but I find that um, writing for me is the, the medium that I enjoy the most and I think it leaves something substantial. And I think there's something wonderful about the simplicity of words, um, you know, in an age where we do have things fed to us, quite often audiovisual means of feeding something to us, which can in itself be beautiful and transformative, but it can also in a way limit our imagination. Words have a wonderful way of uh, enabling people to bring their own colours and bring their own sense and, and to bring their own memories. You know, a, a character that we write about might, transport someone somewhere else and so there's a there's a great um uh there's a great possibility in sharing story mm, that's a great answer and I, I liked the idea of bringing memory into it and i loved the idea of revelation because for me that's what shadow lines was it was such a revelation of just these personal stories and i think that's why i liked it so much i mean your grandparents they weren't supposed to meet they were not allowed to meet and yet they did and they connected and they married and it's just a really nice story that these things can happen amongst such prejudice and such adversity. Oh, well, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. It's a wonderful, heartfelt book honouring two remarkable people and, you know, like we said, they fought against prejudice in a time where it was very difficult to fight against. So thank you so much for writing it and it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about it tonight. Well, thank you, and um, even though it's my name on it and I did write it, um, you know, it comes down to those many dozens of people who shared their stories with me, so there's a, there's a whole lot of ghosts in the room. <laughs> <laughs>